grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's great to be back this evening to close out our day together in worship of the Almighty Triune God. Please stand as he calls us into worship from Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Let's do just that by singing hymn number 86 from the Trinity Hymnal, Now Thank We All Our God. Please be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, how sweet it is when brothers dwell together in unity. How wonderful it is when your people gather in your presence to give you praise. How awesome it is to consider that you would make us once your enemies, now your sons and your daughters, who long to give you praise. Father, we thank you for your sustaining providence in our lives, that even as we walk through these doors this evening, 
You were maintaining every breath we took and every step we made to sit in this place and to come together as one body to give you praise. And we are encouraged knowing that we're not alone in this city. We're not alone in this state. We're not alone in our country. We're not alone in this world. We are not the only ones who tonight are pausing to worship you. And we pray that not just here, but around the world, your spirit would be active and at work in the souls of your people, bringing many to faith and strengthening and encouraging the faith of those who already believe. Father, we confess that though this is your day, and uh, though it has been just a few hours since we last confessed our sin, we have yet sinned again and are in need of your mercy and forgiveness. We know that it is found in Christ and that he has turned away your wrath from us. He has borne our sin and has satisfied your justice. And so that is our great confidence. It's not in ourselves. It's not in our parents. It's not uh, in those who went before. It is in Christ. We thank you that Christ has given us your spirit who dwells within us to give us strength and confidence to cause us to persevere in the midst of challenging times. We're thankful that he is our helper, our paraclete, called alongside us to give us strength in our hour of need. And Father, we ask that you would uh, be with us tonight as we open your word and spend time in praise. We want nothing else but to see you and to hear you and to commune with you. And we know that it's only by the blood of Christ that we are able to do so. Father, we pray for those who are ill and are battling this virus. We pray for those who have recently been diagnosed with serious diseases. We pray for those who are struggling financially during this time. We ask that you watch over those who are battling depression and fighting mental illness. We know there's a lot of pain and suffering in this world, and we don't even know the half of it, but you know it. It says light to you. You see all and you know all, and we pray that you, in only the way you can do it, would provide the healing balm that is needed for those who suffer in this hour. For those who are joyful, may they turn their souls in joyful praise to you, and not neglecting to acknowledge uh, your joyful hand in giving these uh, beautiful providences. And Father, we're thankful again for your word. Your word is truth, and it brings life. And so we ask that tonight we would be the recipients of great truth, and as a result, be brought nearer to you. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. A scripture reading this evening comes from Genesis 15. We'll read the entire chapter together. Genesis chapter 15 is the great covenant with Abram. This is God's holy word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and... When birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Amen. Let's stand together and join in the doxology. Our confession of faith tonight comes from the Nicene Creed, great statement of Christian orthodoxy, found on the front cover of the Trinity Hymnal. So please open and we'll join together in confessing our faith, answering the question, Christian, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth 
of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's stand together and sing hymn number 141, The King of Love My Shepherd Is.
Please be seated. Our sermon passage tonight comes from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 9, 35 through 38. Please join me in turning there in your Bible. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. This is God's holy word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Amen. Let us pray. Here, Lord, is a a passage which you have given to us to strengthen and encourage our faith and to convict and rebuke and call us to you. And so we ask that as we spend some time... uh, understanding what you have to say to us here, that it would pierce us, that it would pierce us deeply, that we would change as a result of having imbibed your word tonight. We're thankful for your word and ask that as we read it, your spirit would conform us in Christ's image. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What would it take... For you to book a one-way ticket and pack everything that you will take with you in a coffin. All your earthly belongings into a coffin with a one-way ticket, knowing you'd not be coming back. Maybe it would be the promise that you'd be going to a tropical island. You say, okay, I can do that. I'll pack them up and we'll head off to this tropical paradise. Or maybe it would be the promise that you'd always be with family and friends and You'd never depart from their company. I could do that. I'll pack everything into a coffin and buy that one-way ticket. That's not the case for the Wycliffe Bible translators in the early 20th century. As they prepared to head out into the mission field to translate the Bible into never-before-translated languages, they knew that their return was not likely. They knew that disease awaited them, that Evil awaited them that uh, many who would find them strangers and unwelcome would likely kill them. And yet they were convicted knowing that God had called them to buy a one-way ticket and pack their earthly belongings into a coffin, their coffin, to head out into the mission field. They understood the call of Jesus in this passage. And this passage is an important transitional passage in the Gospel of Matthew. This is actually the second time Matthew has written something similar to these verses. Earlier in chapter 4, he writes something very close to what we read here tonight. 
But it's a summary, it's a, a transitional passage from what all has been going on in the preceding chapters. You'll know that Matthew 5-7 through 7 is the great Sermon on the Mount, followed by Jesus performing a great number of miracles, such as healing, calming the storms, casting out demons. And then Jesus prepares us with these words for the commissioning of his disciples in the next chapter, in chapter 10. So immediately as these verses end, Jesus commissions the disciples in the following discourse. And the central idea of this text is that Jesus is calling his disciples to follow his lead. After all that he's done in the preceding chapters, follow his lead and labor with him in the harvest. And this is what I want us to see out of this passage tonight. Four things we want to see as Jesus saw in verse 36. We want to feel as Jesus felt in the same verse. We want to pray as Jesus prayed in verse 38. And finally, we want to do as Jesus did in verse 35. See as Jesus saw, feel as Jesus felt. Pray as Jesus prayed and do as Jesus did. Now, in verse 36, this is what Matthew writes. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds. Now, this is more than just a casual observation by Jesus. He's not just sitting on the mountainside and says, okay, there's a crowd out there. I I see them. It's not just a casual observation. This is the look you get from someone who deeply loves you. It's the look of a father who holds a newborn child for the first time. Or it's the look of a mother who kneels down and extends her arms to a crying toddler who's just skinned their knee and comes running to mama. This is the look of a friend who sits with you in the silence of your grief. This is the look of a husband as he looks down the aisle and his bride is making her way to him. That's the kind of look Jesus has for this crowd. It's the look that we read about in the ironic Benediction, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Jesus sees the crowds. Do you? Do you see the crowds the way that Jesus does in this passage? Every day, 150,000 people die. By the end of this week, over one million people will die and enter into eternity. Either into God's loving presence or into his eternal judgment. There's a a great crowd and we need to be sure that we see them the way that Jesus saw this crowd. Jesus sees them as a plentiful harvest, it says in verse 37. That is, it's a harvest that is ready to be brought in. It's a harvest that is ripe. Jesus wants his disciples to see this way. And Jesus wants us to see this way too. He wants you to see the harvest in your home. Your children, your grandchildren, your husband, your wife, 
He wants you to see the harvest in your neighborhood. Those neighbors aren't there by accident. You're not in that neighborhood by accident. He wants you to see the harvest there. He wants you to see the harvest in your office. He wants you to see the harvest in your school. He wants you to be aware of the harvest that is plentiful in your life. Is that even on your radar? I know that it is. But sometimes it's easy to ignore it or to just set it aside. It may be that person who gets under your skin at work or in your family. You know who I'm talking about. And do you really see them this way? Maybe it's a political adversary, somebody who has a completely different political view than you do. But do you see them the way Jesus sees this crowd here? That's what Jesus wants us to do. That's what Matthew's trying to communicate to us about Jesus. Jesus sees the crowds as a plentiful harvest. And this view, this vision, results in a response on Jesus' part. He doesn't just see them. He doesn't just know that they're there. He doesn't just love them from afar. But secondly, he, he feels a specific feeling for them. It results in this response as he sees them. In verse 36, after he sees the crowds, he has compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We're to feel as Jesus felt in this verse. The word compassion in Greek, it's a great word. It's splankna is the root word for it. It's a great word to say. If you're not spitting in when you're saying it, you're not saying it right. Splankna. And it means the inward parts of a person. Really it means the guts. The heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys. And what it's communicating, that it's translated as compassion, is that this is a gut-wrenching, visceral reaction that Jesus has when he sees these crowds. It's an emotional response which elicits a physical reaction. And in the case of Jesus, this always results in a caring action. It's an emotional response that elicits a physical reaction. So you've experienced this before. Maybe you're petrified of public speaking. And you remember getting up the first time to speak in public. What happens? Your heart starts beating. Your hands get a little sweaty. You might have a waver in your voice. All of that is a physical reaction to this emotional response that you're having. Or maybe you are trying to work up the courage to speak to that girl you had a crush on when you were in middle school. And the same thing started to happen. Palpitations in your heart. Your mouth starts to get dry. Maybe you've experienced it when you found out some particularly bad news. You feel your heart drop and your breath is taken away. All of that is physical response to this emotional reaction that you're having. That's what Jesus is experiencing in this passage. He sees the crowds and he's moved with compassion for them. An emotional response which elicits a physical reaction. Now why did he feel that way about the crowd? There are two adjectives that are used to describe the crowd in this verse. Matthew says the reason he felt this way was because they, the crowd, were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. The first adjective, harassed, if you were to translate it literally, it would mean to flay, or that is to skin alive. But this is a figurative usage of the word, so it means to vex or to extremely annoy. 
It's a great view here of this word, to vex or extremely annoy, to be skinned alive. And who are they harassed by? We learn that they are harassed by their teachers, their spiritual leaders, those who are in charge of the care of their souls. But they weren't just harassed, if that wasn't enough. They were also helpless. That is, they were unable to free themselves from the burdens of their teachers. You'll remember that Jesus says in response to the Pharisees, All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, because my burden is light. That's not the case with the teachers of this day over this crowd. Jesus says, Matthew says that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, Matthew is using some intentional Old Testament language here. This actually is nearly a quote from Ezekiel chapter 34. So listen to this background that Matthew calls on as he describes this crowd as sheep without a shepherd. This is from Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, that is, the leaders, the teachers. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because they had no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. The shepherds have harassed their people. And here is the great shepherd. Casting a loving gaze at the crowds, seeking them out, searching for them, being moved with compassion for them. John Knox, a great Scottish reformer who's largely responsible for the Reformation in Scotland, 
as he began his ministry there, prayed this prayer. Give me Scotland or I die. What a prayer. Give me Scotland or I die. When was the last time you felt that way? I know you felt that way before. God, give me my son or I die. Give me my daughter or I die. Give me my father, my mother. Give me my friend or I die. Where's the feel as Jesus felt in this passage? Jesus sees the crowds, a plentiful harvest, and he's moved with compassion to the very core of his being. And so should we. But he doesn't stop there. Not our Savior. He doesn't just stop at seeing and feeling. In verse 38, the next thing I want us to do is pray as Jesus prayed. You remember that this compassion that Jesus feels, it's an emotional response which elicits a physical reaction that results in some caring action on Jesus' part. And the caring action is prayer in verse 38. This is what he says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, in Greek, if you want to really emphasize what you're trying to say, you take the word that means the most to you and you put it at the start of the sentence. And in this sentence, in English, the word is therefore in verse 38. But take a guess at what the main word is in Greek. The first word it's the word pray. Pray, therefore, earnestly. It's not therefore pray, it's pray in the emphatic position. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, now go and give some food to these people. And he doesn't say, now go and pay their bills and debts and settle them for them. He doesn't say, now go and clothe these people. He doesn't say, go and just comfort these people or console these people. He says, disciples, pray. This is the action I want you to take first as you begin your ministry. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. I think it's interesting to note that as Jesus uses this language, pray to the Lord of the harvest, he has that specific crowd in mind, right? God is the God of that particular harvest at that moment in time. But he's not just the God of that harvest, although Jesus and the disciples see them and they see their faces, they hear their voices, they watch the children running around. God is the God of the harvest in your home. He's the God of the harvest in your neighborhood. God is the God of the particular harvest that you will reap. But it's interesting, the verb Jesus uses in this prayer He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The verb here is actually a little more powerful in the Greek. It's actually the verb cast out laborers into the harvest. Don't you know that's sometimes what it takes? 
This is the verb that is used. It's what Jesus does to the demons. He casts out the demons. This is the verb that's used when Jesus enters the temple and he casts out the money changers from the temple. This is the verb that's used about Jesus as he's sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He's cast out into the wilderness. And Jesus is telling his disciples to pray that God would cast some people out into this harvest. A plentiful harvest. The the laborers are few, he says. That word's the same word that uh, the disciples use when the crowds have gathered around and they come to Jesus and say, Hey, Jesus, uh, can we send these folks away? It's getting late. They haven't eaten. We probably ought to get them back home so they can have some dinner. And Jesus says, No, you feed them. And they say, Well, all we have are a few small fish and a few loaves of bread to feed over 5,000 men not including the women and children. The amount of work that Jesus is doing at this point in time is enormous. We have in our minds that Galilee and the surrounding area at this time is just a smattering of podunk villages here and there in the north of Israel. But actually at this time, there are over 204 villages in Galilee alone, and that's millions of people that Jesus and his disciples are interacting with over this portion of their ministry. Day after day after day after day. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. And so Jesus tells them. Pray. Get ready. And ask God to cast out more laborers. Into this harvest. Now. What's so great about Jesus. Is. As he calls the disciples to pray for this to happen, guess who gets cast out in the next chapter? It's the disciples themselves. The ones who are called to pray are the ones who are sent out into the harvest. As I ministered at Westminster Presbyterian Church up on the northeast side of town, I prayed a similar prayer. God, I pray that you would raise up some people in this congregation that would be ministers, that would be missionaries, that would go out into the harvest to harvest with you. And guess what happened? He sent me to accept a new call to the capital, to be a missionary to those who serve in the government. He said, okay, Jonathan, I'll answer your prayer. I'm casting you out. And that's exactly what Jesus does to the laborers here. And we should be about that kind of prayer. We should be about prayer for new laborers in the harvest. We should be about prayer for old laborers in the harvest. That is, those who have been there and have been there maybe for a long time. They need our prayers. It's a difficult job. It's a hard road to travel. Many don't see the fruits of their labors and won't see them until eternity. And it's important for us to pray for them and to ask God to bring them helpers to join them in the harvest. And that's my prayer for you, Calvary, that there would be some men and women that are raised up out of your congregation that would be missionaries, that would be ministers, that would be those who join Jesus in the gathering of the harvest. Now, all of us are called to do that on some level, aren't we? But Jesus has something specific in mind as he sends the disciples out, and it's those who would give their lives for this pursuit. We're to pray as Jesus 
afraid. We're to see as Jesus saw, feel as Jesus felt, pray as Jesus prayed. And finally, in verse 35, we're to do as Jesus did. Jesus is teaching and preaching and proclaiming the gospel. He's an itinerant minister, so to speak, traveling from village to village and interacting with the people there, proclaiming the good news of the gospel and the reason for his appearance on the scene. Now, he does it professionally. I use that in quotation marks because that's his sole purpose at this moment. He's no longer working with his father as a carpenter. He's not engaged in some other type of work. His entirety of his life is devoted to this ministry. And now the disciples are about to do the same thing. They've set aside their nets. They're no longer collecting taxes They're not doing the livelihood that they had once engaged in. But now Jesus is preparing them for a life devoted to this pursuit. And just like them, we're all called to do that in some way or another. Now I want you to think of someone for a second. Think of someone specific about whom these four things might apply in your own life. Who's someone, and you know who they are, there's at least somebody in your life that you see the way Jesus sees that crowd. Maybe it's a friend that you've had for a long time who's not a believer. Or maybe it's a child for whom you've been praying for years and years and years and years. And maybe it's someone at work. Think of that person. Who is it? You see them, you feel for them. I want you to feel that gut-wrenching reaction that Jesus feels for them. Who is it? I want you to pray for that person today, tonight, as you go to bed, this week. I want you to do something about it. I want you to do what Jesus is doing. Teach and preach and proclaim and witness and be a shining light in the darkness for that person. Get specific about it. We do it, and I know you do too, but I want you to specifically call to mind that one person that you're particularly burdened for. That's the Holy Spirit doing that to you, burdening you for that person. So let's listen to him. And now I want you to think of another person. Someone in your life saw you. The way that Jesus saw that crowd. Someone in your life felt about you. The way that Jesus felt compassion for that crowd. Who was it? Somebody prayed for you. Maybe long before you even knew. Maybe it was generations before you were born. A grandmother. A great grandfather. Somebody prayed for you. God, send somebody to this child. Send somebody to my son. Send somebody. And they prayed for you. Who was it? Somebody did what Jesus did for you. Was it your mom, your dad? Maybe it was a close friend that you had in school. Somebody you met in college. A pastor that you sat under for a period of time. And they did what Jesus did for you. Who was it? 
Isn't it amazing? 2,000 years after Jesus tells the disciples to pray, look at this world. It's filled with laborers. It's filled with laborers harvesting, reaping, calling people to Christ, and many are responding. And you're no exception to that. You've responded. In the 20th and 21st century, Jesus' prayer for the disciples is being answered in you. And in the generations to come, after we're long in glory, those harvesters will continue. And part of the reason they will is because we prayed for them. We asked God to send them. And we carried out Jesus' command to do, to labor, to go out into the harvest. And we set the example. We took the baton from those who were before us and we kept running the race. Let's see as Jesus saw. Let's feel as Jesus felt. Let's pray as Jesus prayed. And let's do what Jesus did at the end of a very hard year and at the beginning of a brand new one. Because there's a lot of work to be done, but it's joyful work. It's work that nourishes the soul. It's work that's well worth doing. And that's exactly what Christ has done for you. A wonderful Savior who has done for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how stirring this passage is to us as we consider all that has happened in order for us to believe in our short span of life on this earth, somebody, maybe more than one person and really a great deal of people have done exactly what you've called the disciples to do here. They saw us and cared for us and felt deeply for us. Down to their guts, they were moved with compassion for us. And they prayed. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed for us. We are the recipients of their prayers. And they shared the gospel. They taught us about Christ. They taught us what sin was. They taught us of our debt to you. They taught us what you've done for us on the cross. And we rejoice that you have put people in our lives like that. And we rejoice that we are those people for others who are yet to come. And Father, let us not neglect this joyful, great duty that you have given to us. To join with our Savior in his holy work. To labor in a plentiful harvest. We know that if we don't see the fruits of it in this life... What a joy it will be in the life to come as we see our children and our grandchildren and generations that come from our families that we had no knowledge of entering into the kingdom of God and joining us in eternity together. Lord, let us not neglect it. Let us not ignore it. But as 2021 comes onto the scene, may it be a year where this congregation and the congregations of Tallahassee and the congregations of your people across the earth join you in this great gathering of the harvest. We thank you for the gifts you have given each one of us to use in that pursuit. May we do it with the fullness of souls, eager to use that which you have bestowed upon us for the glory of your kingdom. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.
we'll join together in the hymn of response, To God Be the Glory, hymn number 667. Let's stand together. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.